The COVID-19 pandemic is a unique moment in our history. These are the stories from the front lines, featuring visits with the heroes who are making a difference when we need them the most, and ideas on how to stay well and balanced as we learn to live in physical distance. From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, this is The Front Lines of COVID, a surgery set series. I'm your host, Jonathan Kohler, a pediatric surgeon trying my best. Welcome. For most of the past eight weeks, we've focused on the clinicians fighting the coronavirus. But what is it that clinicians do in that fight? I mean, literally, technically. We arrive at the hospital, we put on our masks and our face shields and our gowns, then we walk the wards, adjusting ventilators and delivering medications. You could say that's medicine. Or you could say that's applied engineering. Those masks, face shields, gowns, ventilators, medications... They don't come from nowhere like a bit of grain. They're the products of minds and minds. And in the case of COVID-19, many of the minds involved are right here in Wisconsin, right down the street from the hospital, where innovators from the university and the private sector have come together to create a collaborative that's gained international attention for their rapid development of essential solutions to the COVID crisis. I actually first read about their work in an article in Wired magazine, which described the serendipitous effect on face shield manufacturing of having the director of the engineering school's innovation lab married to an anesthesiologist. But the full story is much deeper than that. I talked to Peter Adamczyk, the co-director of the Engineering College COVID Response, to find out more. Peter, thank you for joining us on the surgery set to tell the story of a very different way of, of being a frontline worker from what we've talked about a lot in the past, which is sort of the the healthcare role and what doctors and people in the healthcare sphere are doing. But there's nothing that we're doing that we don't need you guys for because you are an engineer and, and someone who's been leading our engineering efforts. Tell me a little bit about, I mean, let's, let's take it back a, a couple of decades. Tell me what you were doing in like January. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then what, what, what's than a happened decades, since? It yeah. seems. <laughs> Uh, so what I was doing in January was biomechanics research. My, my work focuses on prosthetic feet, rehabilitation engineering, rehabilitation robotics, and wearable sensors. And so we've been spending our time working towards real-world data collections and designing and testing advanced prosthetic feet and robotics to help people recover function after stroke. That's what an ordinary day looks like. Wow. So you were already sort of in the healthcare sphere, a little familiar with sort of that that A little bit. Yep. Yeah. Then what happened? Did you just get a phone call one day saying like, drop everything and make masks? There's been so much interest from people directly in healthcare and in particular in UW Health. Maybe it's the sort of academic nature of the institution. When a problem faces them, they immediately get, get new ideas for you know how to solve it. And often that, that led them over to engineering. And the way I got involved was sort of fielding one of those requests along with a team of others. And then having the, the engineering college realize that this was, this was rapidly leading to disarray. And so they, they hit pause for a day and organized and then picked a couple of people to, to sort of coordinate this effort back and forth, specifically between UW Health and UW College of Engineering. And so I'm one of those people and Lennon Rogers in the... Uh, UW Makerspace is the other. And so, so, so now when requests come in, we, we're trying to coordinate between decision makers at UW Health and people who can solve those technical issues over in engineering. So the first thing that happened was people said, I know an engineer and they just like email whoever they know and like everyone starts simultaneously working on a million different projects and, and then sort of you've, you've had to consolidate that down. 
that was what was at risk of happening and okay. we, we nipped it early and, and have been reasonably well organized. One of the projects that I think first came to my attention, I mean, even though you guys are working down the street, the first I really heard of the work that you were doing was a, an article in Wired, you know, a national publication about how a local maker who was the husband of an anesthesiologist had started working on barrier masks or, or face shields rather and and had found his way into your program is that is that the first project and maybe tell us a little bit more about that which it sounds like is sort of one of the better evolved projects that's come out so Lennon Rogers is the guy who's in charge of that. He is the, the other co-director of this effort across the board in College of Engineering here. He sort of fielded an awareness of a shortage of these protective masks for healthcare workers. And his role on an ordinary days is to, to run the, the Granger Institute for Engineering Design. I think it is, which includes the UW engineering makerspace. And so he's sort of thinking about how to do makery kind of things, you know, low cost, quick production, rapid prototyping. He's thinking about that all the time, teaching our engineering students how to do it so that they can make the most of their educational time here. And so he was able to, to quickly pick up and, and prototype some stuff. And he's excellent at that. So <laughs> it's no surprise that it, that it took hold and has actually become a pretty pretty widely disseminated and used device now in production in a lot of places by private companies, nonprofits, and whatnot. It's something you were able to sort of disseminate the plans for and then Ford or whatever can just start putting them out by the million. Yeah, and it's, it's simple enough that it can be anywhere from somebody in their garage to, to a, a sizable manufacturing company. Wow. Tell me a little bit more about the maker space. I mean, what, is, what is that? I sort of imagine like a bunch of tinkerers in a garage, but I imagine that's, it's more that's than more that. or less what it is. Okay. And, uh, that, so the word makerspace is not unique to our usage. That's a, that's a thing. And what it means in general is a, a space where some group of people will collect resources for building stuff. So maybe it's milling machines or laser cutters or routers to cut, a, cut out wooden parts maybe electronics, prototyping equipment, any number of things that you might do to produce things that are, that are hard to do in your garage because the right equipment is really expensive. But if you get a community of somewhere between dozens and hundreds of people together, you can pool resources and do this. And so there are some that are available to the public uh, on like a membership basis. And this one is set up for engineering students. And so throughout the, the curriculum that we have here in engineering, there are lots and lots of design steps, if you will. So design courses and courses that have projects that require design. And so the students are over there all the time making new parts after their own ideas and, and trying them out. Wow. So it's, it's a real incubator for innovation. It is. And it's been, a, so we received a, a gift to establish it several years ago. And that's been one of the great investments that's been pretty transformative to the student experience. Yeah. I mean, you have to imagine too that like whoever's making philanthropy towards makerspaces is seeing huge return on their investment right? in this period where like really there is incredible engagement. And we've talked about this in the podcast a lot. Like one of the amazing things about the COVID pandemic is how it's gotten every person with every skill set to start like pulling the same direction. Um, mm -hmm. And that's doctors and it's, you know, all the people at the hospital, but it's also, you know, it's journalists, it's John Krasinski who like is putting out YouTube videos to make people feel better. And it's, it's makers who are like, well, I know how to make stuff like uh, what, what needs to be made. What mm -hmm. sort of things are you working on now? I mean, like what, what is the, what is the range of things that you're working on and how are you, how are you prioritizing what to devote energy to? 
there are essentially no needs for which products don't exist already in this pandemic, right? That, you know, the healthcare system knows how to deal with infection and viruses in the air and, and whatnot. But the, the scale is the big issue. And so what we're trying to identify, what actually it goes through the procurement channels at the, at the health systems quite a bit. They're trying to identify things that they can no longer get, where there's a there's a six week backlog on a four week pandemic, or something mm. like that, right? Yeah. And so that means there is no solution, even though there should be one. And and they're trying to identify those and find quick and easy, hopefully affordable <laughs> ways yeah. to to plug those gaps essentially and get people protected better. And so mainly that's personal protective equipment in several different flavors for the healthcare workers, but also some things about just general environmental safety. So we talked first about the face shield design that has largely grown up, matured, and been disseminated. And so now it's been picked up in lots of places. Some of the other needs include what it was called a powered air purifying respirator. You're probably familiar with that as many of your listeners be familiar with that. So that has a hood component as well as a blower component. The blower component has a physical blower, but also power electronics and filters on it. And each of these has become a pinch point. And so we've worked through a combination of engineering and and helping out the procurement process to to solve some of those needs. So uh, right now we're working on substitute filters since the ones that come off the shelf are long backlogged and nobody knows when they'll be available. So you can get other kinds of filters and we're working to adapt them for this usage uh, and doing some testing on that. And they're, they're close to, close to working. Uh, and cool. so we're pretty confident that that's going to, that's going to come through here. I hope we're working on ways of getting the batteries. So, uh, so right now the existing systems will run for something like eight to 10 hours, but the desire of course is to protect all the health personnel all the time because the the need is going to be so intense here as it grows so essentially we want to get those into 24-hour service and when the battery is the limiting factor well batteries can be found you just have to find a way to make them work with your device that's a substantial challenge and so there's been a huge amount of engineering trying to figure out how to how to source and then and then connect uh, additional batteries to make these to make these work and make the systems compatible with them so those are a couple the pepper has a hood problem. So it was some news of several days ago when the National Stockpile released a bunch of pepper hoods to the UW health system. That's a nice that's a nice partial solution, but there's a compatibility issue with the blowers. And so there's an effort to do adapters between them. And that has been successful already. And they're they're making that they're making a difference that way. There's also a need for a different style of hood that so the ones that came off of the off the stockpile are a, are a head covering, but many of the physicians want head and shoulders. And so there are efforts to, to build one that's more appropriate for the specific tasks they're doing. So that PAPR kind of thing is sort of the best protective equipment you have against aerosols, if I understand the discussion correctly. So that's, my um, that's where we focus a huge amount of effort on trying to do that. There are also some efforts that have grown up organically about ways of just preventing patients from spreading disease around themselves, right? So if they do need to go on a ventilator, they need to be intubated and are likely to cough a lot and spread things all over when they do that. So there are, are several physicians at UW Health and across town that have been giving input on boxes that you sort of contain that person with while you're doing that procedure. And we're working to draw a negative pressure on that box so that it doesn't get out uh, and it gets, gets filtered appropriately and, and thereby protects a whole room full of people from that event as well as maybe during transport. So those are some. There are more. There yeah. uh, is a shortage of, of swabs for actually testing with COVID. And so 
that is the kind of thing that, that has an effort to, to produce them with 3D printing. Makerspaces and, and many facilities now have the ability to do 3D printing, and there's a specific kind that's about halfway to being vetted for that. And so we're, we're producing some and, and then testing them in conjunction with the, the hospital staff that regulates safety issues to see if they're appropriate for, for doing the tests. Yeah, tell me a little bit about the, the vetting process, right? I mean, I feel as though a lot of artificial bureaucratic b- barriers and sort of standard timelines have fallen by the wayside. But I assume you, you're not just kind of putting these together saying, eh, it looks pretty good and like having doctors put them on, right? Like, how, how does that work? How do you interface with the health system to do the testing to be sure these things are safe for their application? Well, one of the benefits of organizing this effort between UW Health and Engineering is that it is, has put a recognized command structure and, and coordination in, in place for that to follow. So essentially, uh, each of these projects has a point person who's a, who's a clinical person who's advising on the design as it comes up. And then when it's ready, that comes over to the hospital with one to a few prototypes. And that individual, as well as in this case, we're working through anesthesiology and respiratory therapy staff to, to evaluate it and then continue iterating. When it's really ready to go, it goes to infection control and, and safety uh, personnel to look at, and then ultimately up the chain for whoever's at the top of that approval list. I don't know. It, it involves legal. It involves you know whoever whoever has to finally stamp off on that as well as procurement. And so there's a whole chain of people, and they're pretty well organized and responsive now. So things have come back and sometimes in a matter of hours that they've been looked at by all appropriate parties uh, and said either no, no, go back and try again, you know, with these changes or yes, push the go button. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as someone who was in this, in the healthcare world in a, in a different way with, with your prosthetics and, and presumably one of these days we'll be able to get back to the normal course of business. How do you think that this event has changed the relationship long-term between the engineering college and the medical side of things. Uh, Is it a little early to all, say? Maybe. All viewpoints, all viewpoints are short term right now. I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, my hope is that it sort of sparked an awareness that that when somebody in the healthcare front lines has an idea, you have a friendly neighbor here who loves to to help solve problems and bring them to a pretty high performing solution, right? And so that's that's 200 faculty and all their associated research staff and students uh, over in engineering who who you know are raring to go on projects that are important. That's sort of our raison d'etre, if you will, right? Yeah. Is to to solve problems that make a difference in the world. And so there's a there's a huge firepower over here that I think is is getting more and more recognized as a resource. And so I, I hope that's lasting. And hopefully, you know, if we come up with ideas too, independently, and now I hope those connections can flow the other way as well. That we'll have people interested in fielding them and and seeing where we can push the boundaries forward. Any resources that you would point people to, either you know, engineers who want to get involved in uh, healthcare efforts uh, or spurred on by these strange times of ours, or resources for physicians who want to be thinking about you know, how, how you engage the engineering space or you know, work you should, pre-work you should do before you call your friendly local engineer? Engineers will take an idea at any point. So <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> don't worry too much about that. Napkin drawings are great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You know, engineers who want to get in, get involved in this stuff. You know, the the main thing is to is to sort of do your mental homework and a look around for other solutions. So there are a number of things that have come up as potential projects that sometimes just end up with an alternative acquisition that that solves it. Right? You know, it's been a problem solved before. 
and then the other one is uh, remember to think of ancillary issues, right? So when we initially started, well, various of the filtering projects, it's like, okay, can we find a filter that has such and such performance? Well, as we're going through it, we're reminding ourselves that filter material is one thing, but filters have housings and the housings have to be sealed and the, the, the housing has to be attached to the device and that has to be sealed and all these things have to be mechanically stable. They have to be disinfectable. You know, there are many, many aspects to all of this. And, right. uh, and so you, you can't do it in a mentally lazy way. You have, to, you have to really engage with the whole problem. And so practice on that. Well, that's what we try to encourage our students to learn try to develop in them through the projects we give them. And then, you know, practicing engineers develop that, you know, through their first on the job experiences, if not before, because it's just the nature of life in, in this uh, world. Who all is involved in this effort? Like if I went to the makerspace right now, would I see, you know, tweedy old professors over, you know, over a lathe and then, you know, undergraduates kind of scurrying around? Like what, paint me a picture of like what, what's happening in your building. <laughs> Almost nothing is happening okay. in the building. So we're we're under lockdown like everybody else. So this is uh, happening so from people's homes or a lot of times it's happening from people's homes. I'm more familiar with people's living rooms and, and home offices than I ever thought I'd be. Wow. Um, there are a few things happening and and part of coordinating who is who it's worth having on campus, you know, to get those resources activated in their hands that's been part of the decision-making process that the College of Engineering as a whole is going through during this. Wow. So a few important things. One of the things that I, I neglected to mention as far as work that's going on is testing of filter media and filtration systems. And so, for example, we have an engine research group and one of the faculty in that is involved in particulate testing. And well, what are we doing now except trying to protect people from particulate matter of different kinds that gets inhaled? And so he's, he's been working huge amounts along with a couple of students in an appropriately protected way, right? Yeah. To, to actually do that. And they've tested lots of materials and come up with some, some potential substitutes for media and masks and things like that. There are a bunch of like reverse engineering slash, slash design uh, facilities. So, you know, what happens when you need to make a compatible part? Well, you got to scan the old part and find out what its geometry is so that you can make new ones to go with it. And so those facilities have been pretty active. There's a, there's a lot of performance testing of things that's going on. So, so for example, a bunch of these have to do with air handling and that means blowers and that means flow rates and pressure drops across filters and, and such. And so there's been uh, an active team working on that as well as the, the 3D printing group. So if you did in fact walk into the makerspace, you would see very few people because they're uh, isolating and separating, distancing, but the couple or few people who are there will have an army of machines working at their disposal to produce different things. So 3D printing, lots of stuff, as well as some other techniques for rapid, rapid prototyping that they're doing, and electronics and, and whatnot. To get the rest of the story, you'd have to walk around to, to 50 living rooms in the Madison area to <laughs> talk, talk to whoever's working on it from home all night. <laughs> the ideas are just flowing back into the lab. It's, I mean, it's such a cool image of just like everybody at home working on all of these projects, all pulling together to, to really create such remarkable, innovative answers. I mean, it's just, I, I can't say enough about the work that you guys have done and how cool it is to see all of this coming together. And you know, the, the timeline is so short, it's been really exciting for those involved to, to be part of it. And you know, we're hoping that it really does make a, a difference and 
uh, you know, save some life or at least health for the, the, the doctors who really are on the front lines and the nurses and, and other staff at the hospitals. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your taking the time. And then again, congratulations on the amazing work that you guys are doing. This is fantastic. It's, it's my pleasure to be a part of it and a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks to Peter Adamchik. The UW-Madison has been partnering through all of this with Chris Meyer at Madison's nonprofit private sector makerspace, Sector 67. We've got links to both of them and to the Wired story in the show notes. Did any of the rest of you run to your bookshelves on the day the lockdown started and pull down your copy of Camus' The Plague? I did. And I've been dipping into it. I first read it as a college student, home from break. I picked it up at random from a bookshelf one evening before bed, and I started in, and the next thing I knew it was morning. Now, to some degree living the story of that book, like the main character, Dr. Ryu, I'm a doctor navigating a world overturned by illness, I find it hard to concentrate on. It's too familiar, too real, not enough of an escape. So I dip in, and then I watch an episode of Community on Netflix. But there's one passage that came to mind when this all started and which I've revisited a few times since because I think, I hope, it tells the tale of our time and what we're trying to do in this podcast in just a few lines. Dr. Rue resolved to compile this chronicle so that he should not be one of those who hold their peace, but should bear witness in favor of those plague-stricken people so that some memorial of the injustice and outrage done them might endure and to state, quite simply, what we learn in a time of pestilence, that there are more things to admire in men than to despise. If you have an experience with COVID-19 you'd like to share, or a question you want answered on the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out to me on Twitter, at J.E. Kohler, that's K-O-H-L-E-R, you can also send us an email at podcast at surgery.wisc.edu. If you want to hear about something other than COVID-19, our regular program is focused on the latest innovations in surgery, including interviews with the pioneers at its cutting edge. If you're new here, feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. Give our Facebook page a like and follow us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Bonnie Farber, J.P. Swenson, and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was edited by J.P. Swenson. Special thanks to Nicole Jennings, Rebecca Minter, and everyone else in our department pulling together during this adventure. Until next time, be well and stay in touch, friends. Remember, you can't stop the clock. This too shall pass.